Scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, 19 to 31. It's, if you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 876. Please follow along as I read from God's holy and inerrant word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Lord, we know how desperate we are for your spirit to come and to teach us to illuminate your truth to our minds, to our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory and your grace in this passage that we might be transformed more into your image, that we might carry out your ministry in our lives, the lives of this church, in this city. Lord, we pray that you will use this text to move us to be your hands and feet. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ever visit Cairo, you can go to the Egyptian National Museum and see for yourself King Tut's exhibit. As you might know, King Tutankhamun was a boy king who died at the age of 17. He was in 
entombed with a vast hoard of treasures, treasures that remained undisturbed for 3,000 years until 1922 when Howard Carter discovered the burial chamber. And what they found inside was almost unbelievable. King Tut was buried in a golden coffin within a golden tomb, within another golden tomb, in another one, and in another one. And they, he was buried alongside thousands of golden artifacts, like solid gold chariots, solid gold thrones. It was just gold everywhere. The Egyptians buried their kings this way because they believed that in, uh, in, in the afterlife that you could be able to take these things with you. And so they thought that if we, if we bury someone with all of their earthly treasures, then they could somehow maintain that wealthy status in the afterlife. Now, contrast King Tutankhamun's burial chamber with another burial site also found in Cairo. There's a graveyard in Cairo off some dusty side road where some American missionaries are buried. And there you're going to find a simple gravestone of a missionary named William Borden. William Borden was the son of a wealthy Chicago family that made millions in silver mining. Uh, A life of wealthy comfort and ease was laid out before him. But when he graduated from Yale in 1909, he took a very different path. He went off to Princeton Seminary. He graduated with a degree there. He joined China Inland Missions, and he planned to be a missionary to the Uyghur Muslims of Northwest China. But before he was to move there, he went first to Cairo in order to study the language, the Arabic language and the Islamic faith. But after only four months of training, he contracted spinal meningitis and died in 1913. He was only 25 years old. He had already given away much of his wealth to uh, the work of God in missions, but he bequeathed the rest of his riches to China Inland Mission. And on his gravestone are etched these words, apart from faith in Christ, There is no explanation for such a life. That's well said. I think only Jesus could say it better. And he did in last week's parable. And again, he said it in today's. We've been in a summer series going through the parables of Jesus and the Gospel of Mark. And last week we started in chapter 16. And it began with a parable about money and about the importance of investing that money for the future, for a forever future, and not just for a few decades ahead of you before you retire. Today's parable, which concludes chapter 16, continues on with this same theme. I I know many people assume that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable all about hell and building a theology of the afterlife, but actually It focuses more on this present life and how you are stewarding the riches that God has entrusted to you, especially in relation to the poor and needy that he has put around you. How are you using your money and your resources to care for the poor and needy? You know, both King Tut and William Borden were men of tremendous wealth. 
and both died at a relatively young age, but they differed significantly in how they made use of their relatively short lives and all of the resources that were at their disposal. King Tut made the tragic decision of hoarding all of his earthly riches, thinking that he could take it with him. But all of that gold, as we know, was stuck in that tomb while he went on to experience a miserable, Christless existence for eternity. William Borden, on the other hand, he didn't despise his wealth, but neither did he depend on it. He willingly gave it away. He invested in eternal things. He planned for his forever future with his King Jesus. Borden knew that it's not bad to be rich. It's just bad to die rich, having neglected to care for those in need and having neglected to prepare for your own forever future. And so as we study this morning's parable, we're going to consider three principles that we can derive from this text. If you want to follow along, look in your bolts and you'll see an outline. The first is the way we see and steward our earthly riches echoes in eternity. Second, there will be no mercy in the afterlife for those who deny it in this life. And third, Nothing will convince us to change until we are changed by the Word of God. So let's look at our first principle. Our stewardship in life echoes in eternity. The way we see and steward our earthly riches ripples into the future, into our forever future. And we see this principle really playing out between the rich man and Lazarus. Now, before we look at these two characters more closely, it's important to understand why Jesus is telling this parable and to whom is he actually telling it to. Now, chapter 16 started with Jesus talking specifically to his disciples, and he tells them the the, the parable of the dishonest manager, or some call it the parable of the shrewd steward. And there, he's stressing the importance of stewarding your money well, to steward it shrewdly or wisely, preparing for eternity instead of just indulging yourself in this life. Now, after Telling this parable, if you look with me in verse 14, there were also some Pharisees present listening to this parable, and Luke describes them intentionally as lovers of money. And they were there ridiculing Jesus' teaching. Now, why is that? Well, it's because, as it says in verse 15, they were trying to justify themselves before men. In other words, they believed that they were right with God because of their outward devotion to the law, to to the law and prophets. And they saw their wealth, their riches, as proof that they're right with God, as proof that they have God's favor. The Pharisees saw having money as a litmus test of your spiritual health. But Jesus, on the other hand, saw how you use your money as the true test. And if you are willing to use your money to bless other people and to prepare for eternity, then it indicates that you're doing well. You're spiritually healthy. It shows that you truly are serving God and you're not serving money. So last week we said that the shrewdest use of your money The smartest thing for you to do with your earthly riches is to invest in the work of the gospel, in the work of evangelism, and in global missions, making eternal friends who will be there one day to welcome you in glory. 
We saw in chapter 16, verse 9, it says, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. That's just referring to money. By using your money so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, friends, this morning's parable is an illustration, or it's more like a counterexample of verse 9. It illustrates what happens when you don't shrewdly use your money, when you instead steward your wealth selfishly, when you don't invest with eternity in mind. Jesus is directing this parable, I hope you see, to the Pharisees who were there, who were lovers of money, warning them, don't be like this rich man in the parable who used his money just to serve himself and not the needs of those around him. Just look at how his actions echo in eternity to his shame and eternal regret. Be different. Be warned about what is going to happen if you steward your money in this selfish, unshrewd way. Now, in verse 19, Jesus describes this rich man as one who is clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, that's the color uh, that is fitting, and, and the color in the apparel that's fitting for royalty, uh, for, for the wealthy in ancient Near Eastern society. And it says here that he feasted sumptuously every day. So he is, Jesus is describing for us this life of, of extravagant self-indulgence. He has unlimited resources at his fingertips, and yet he's not even willing to lift a finger to help this poor man at his gate. In verses 20 to 21, we're introduced to this poor man, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you have this contrast. You have this rich man robed in purple, feasting sumptuously, and you have this poor man robed in sores, begging for scraps. It says that he was laid at the rich man's gate, which indicates that he was most likely an invalid. So every day what was happening was that this rich man would leave his house, he would pass by his gate, and he would see this invalid at the gate begging for scraps. And we know that he saw him because later on in verse 24, he recognizes the poor man. He even even knows his name. And so he definitely saw the man's plight. He just chose to ignore it. He chose to walk on by. This poor man is so overlooked, so marginalized, that no one is paying him any attention, no one is giving him any relief. The only ones in this parable to give him any attention and relief are the street dogs that are licking his sores. Now, I think one of the most notable features in the way that these two characters are introduced to us is the fact that this poor man is actually given a name, the name Lazarus. You know, most parables just have nameless characters because they're not describing historical individuals, historical events. They're just fictional stories used to teach a lesson. And so giving a character a name here, when it really isn't necessary, is rather significant. Now, there's no reason to associate him with the Lazarus that you know in John chapter 11, the one that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, Lazarus was just a very common name 
in those days. It's associated with the Hebrew name Eleazar. And so you see that name used quite a bit in the Old Testament. And the name Eleazar or Lazarus simply means God helps or the one whom God has helped. And so that's really his name. That's his identity. He, he's, he's not defined by his poverty. He, his identity is not wrapped up in his meager circumstances. His identity is found in his finding help in God. He's defined by his dependence on God. He's Lazarus. God is his help. But this rich man, on the other hand, notice how he goes nameless. And do you see why he's nameless? He's nameless. He's only known as the rich man because his identity was wrapped up in his riches. Because if you took away his riches, he would really be nothing. They were his everything. His riches were his help. But for Lazarus, even if you were to take away his lives, he would still have his treasure. He would still have his God because God was his treasure. God was his help. And the whole point needs to be stressed here because, friends, you have to understand that Having money is not what sends someone to hell. It's a way of viewing and using money that could send you there. It's when money becomes really more than just money. It's when money becomes part of your identity. It becomes your help. You see, being poor is not a virtue. And, and being rich is not a vice, but if your riches, if your financial status, your financial security has become fundamental to your very identity, then think about it. You're really no different than this nameless rich man. Even if you don't consider yourself rich, it doesn't really matter how much money you have if losing it all or if giving it all away would make you feel empty, make you feel like you don't really have anything, that you're nothing, that you have nothing and you are nothing, then sadly, money has become your help. The name Lazarus wouldn't really fit you. And, you know, this principle is not limited to just the issue of money. We could easily put our help in a fulfilling career, a happy family, in sports, in leisure, you could take these treasures, you, you, can, you can treasure these, these things to the point that if they were taken away, so like take away your career, take away your family, take away your health and your ability to, to enjoy your favorite activities, if you take these things away and you feel like, man, there's just no real reason to live anymore. I, I, I feel like I don't have anything or I, 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 I've just lost it all. If that's true for you, well, then it's a good indication that you've essentially become that very thing that you treasure. For the rich man, it was his riches. For you, it could be something else. Your identity is being wrapped up in that very thing. That thing, whatever it is, has become your help. And so, friends, this parable is a call to examine your attitude towards your riches and all the other resources that God has put in your life. Like, don't ignore this issue and wait until your death to finally figure out who or what is your real help or who or what is your true treasure. 
Death revealed that this rich man's money was his help, that his riches were his treasure. The way he saw and the way he stewarded his riches echoed in eternity, again, to his great shame. Death is the great revealer. You'll eventually learn the true state of your heart upon your death. And that's why it's so much better to find out sooner, to figure it out now. And so ask yourself, how do I see my earthly riches? And how am I stewarding it? I think one way to reveal that answer for yourself is to examine your own attitude and actions towards the poor, towards the needy that God has placed in your life. If last week's parable was a call to invest in the work of evangelism and missions, well, this week's parable would be a call to invest in the work of compassion and mercy ministries. If how we see and steward our earthly riches is going to echo in eternity, well, then let's open up our eyes to see the poor and needy that God has laid out at our gates. Like the rich man, I fear that many of us have been walking past Lazarus without a care in our hearts. And I'll be honest, I feel like Like over the years, my own heart has grown cold and and hard towards the poor and needy that I see on the side of the road every single day. I mean, my eyes have just adapted to this this constant visual of someone holding up a sign. I I totally, I I know they're there. I I can see them. I just choose to ignore it. I, I choose to just drive on by. What does that reveal about me? If I'm denying mercy in this life, then Am I presuming too much to expect it in the afterlife? Presuming that I'm going to be shown mercy in the afterlife. That leads to our second principle. The second point here is there will be no mercy in the afterlife for those who deny it in this life. And that's graphically illustrated for us in verse 22. Let me read that again. The poor man died in was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Lazarus dies. He's carried off to Abraham's side. That's likely a picture of the great end times wedding feast that Jesus has already used as an imagery in his previous parables. Uh, Lazarus is, is shown mercy in the afterlife. And again, it's not because he was poor and needy. It's because he realized that he was needy of God to be his help in salvation. That's why he's there. The rich man, on the other hand, well, he has shown no mercy. It says in verse 23 that he's being tormented in Hades. Now, Hades, that's a Greek word. It's equivalent to the word sheol in Hebrew. So you might see that word used uh, in, in your footnotes, uh, in, your, in, in the Old Testament. Um, and Sheol, uh, to the Hebrews, were, was just understood as the realm of the dead, where you would await final judgment before God. Uh, in, in Greek, Hades is just understood to be the home of departed souls. Uh, you could also argue that the New Testament makes a distinction between Hades and Gehenna, Gehenna uh, is typically, in your English Bible, going to be translated directly as hell, and it's known as a place of fiery judgment. 
Uh, it's used in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12, verse 5. Um, one way to, to look at the, the relation here is to understand Hades as the place where those who aren't saved, those who have not trusted in Jesus as their help and salvation, that's where they go in the afterlife. And there they await final judgment. They await uh, uh, the, the time when according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 to 15. Let me read this. Revelation 20. They will be in Hades until death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this rich man is in Hades awaiting final judgment where he will one day be thrown into hell, into Gehenna, into this lake of fire. But it says here that while he's in Hades, he looks and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now let's be careful here not to press the details and not to build some sort of theology concerning the afterlife, you know, uh, building some kind of doctrine of, of there being some kind of interdimensional communication between the saved and unsaved, you know, in Hades and, and in heaven. This parable is, like I said before, not trying to describe the afterlife for us. It's actually here to teach a lesson about this present life, to live this life with deep concern for the afterlife. That's the point here. So if you look at verse 24, it says the rich man pleads for mercy. He asks for some relief. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's asking for mercy. Please send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Now there's some great irony there. There's also a great reversal of fortune. Lazarus is now the one feasting sumptuously at the Lord's table, reclining at Abraham's side, while this rich man is now the one outside the gate, begging for scraps, begging for just the slightest touch of relief. But Abraham says, it's not possible. It's not possible. Look at verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. You're not able. And none may cross from there to us. Now again, without pressing the details here, we can say that the main thing verse 26 is teaching is that our fates are sealed at death. That God's final judgment is final. I think it's pretty sobering to basically hear Abraham say no. I mean, we're trained to, to think that if you ask for mercy, it's always yes. But here, Abraham says no. The rich man asked for mercy and he was denied. There's no mercy in the afterlife for those who fail to show it 
in this life. That's the principle being taught. If you deny mercy to those who are in need in this life, then why would you expect mercy to be shown to you when you're in need in the next life? That's the logic of this parable. And this principle is reinforced in a number of places in Scripture. Jesus said earlier in Luke chapter 6, verse 37 to 38, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so the opposite would be true. Judge, and you will be judged. Don't forgive and you won't be forgiven. Don't show mercy and you won't be shown mercy. Or just listen to James chapter 2, verse 13. James 2. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And then he goes on in verses 14 to 17 to address the very scenario of walking past someone just like Lazarus. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, there, James is not denying that faith and faith alone is what saves. But what he's saying is that true saving faith always expresses itself in works. Particularly here, in works of compassion for the poor and needy. So to callously walk by someone in need is a possible indicator that the faith that you think you have is really just a false, dead faith. That's what James 2 is about. And John, the Apostle John, makes a similar point in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then listen here to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Do you see how Proverbs 21, 13 is perfectly being illustrated for us in this parable? The rich man closed his ear to the cry of Lazarus. He closed his heart against them. And so in the afterlife, afterlife, when he calls out and cries out for mercy, there's no answer. There's no answer. Now, you know, friends, I, I understand that these passages that I just read could be confusing. So let me just provide some clarification here. Let me just say very clearly that these passages are not teaching that your acts of mercy will turn God's hand to therefore show you mercy. That's not what these verses are saying. No, rather, like it says in 1 John chapter 3, your acts of mercy are the evidence proving that God's love already abides in you. 
That they demonstrate that you were an object of his saving mercy. That you were already changed by that mercy. And now that mercy resides in you and is flowing out of you. It's like when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 15. That if you do not forgive others their trespasses. Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now there he's not suggesting that your forgiveness of sins by God is contingent upon your ability to forgive the sins of other people around you. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. That would be salvation by works, forgiveness by, by, by your performance and your ability. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Rather, there in that passage, Jesus is just saying that forgiven people are by nature forgiving people. Forgiven people, I should say, are by new nature forgiving people. And so in the same way, people who have experienced divine mercy are by new nature merciful people. So you have to understand that the Bible is clear. We are saved by grace alone, but not a grace that leaves us alone. That leaves us where we are. No, grace changes us. The grace of God's mercy and forgiveness transforms us into merciful, forgiving people. And so by implication, if I discover that I have a callous attitude towards the poor, or if I realize that I have been harboring an unforgiving spirit towards other people, then I could very well be fooling myself to presume that I've experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God. I know that's a disconcerting thought. I I know that feels very uncomfortable to consider that we could be deluding ourselves, but wouldn't you rather have Scripture reveal that to you now than to have death reveal it to you later when it's too late? Robert Mary McShane was a 19th century pastor who told his congregation that, yes, I'm very concerned for the poor, but but I'm actually more concerned for you. He tells his congregation, I'm concerned for your seemingly cold heart towards the poor because he knew that converted people have new hearts filled with new mercies, having experienced the mercy of Christ our Savior. And so let me just read to you from one of Robert McShane's sermons. This is his sermon on Acts chapter 20, verse 35. This is where it quotes Jesus as saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's a very powerful sermon. It's, it's, it's so Christ-centered in the way that it undercuts all of our excuses to justify why we lack mercy. You know, because like, we're always trying to, like the Pharisees, justify ourselves as to why we tend to refuse giving to the undeserved poor. So he's exhorting his people in this sermon, his, his own congregation that he knows, he says, I, I know you pray all the time to be more like Christ, to be more conformed to his image. Well, you need to be more conformed in your giving, just as Christ was a giving Savior. And he quotes here an even older preacher who once said this, what would have become of us if Christ had been as saving of his blood as some men are of their money. He goes on and he walks through three objections that are found likely in his congregation's minds and and probably in our own minds. He says this, objection one, 
my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forces it from me. Then where should we have been? Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? No, I will give it to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ may have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth, Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make an excuse, make it an excuse for sinning more, and yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Church, I think we need to reorient our attitude towards giving especially when it comes to the poor, to those who have done nothing to deserve our compassion. But isn't that the point of mercy? It's for the undeserved. Mercy is for the undeserved. And it was, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus gave his blood for us. So is, this, is it for the same joy that you give to care for those in your life, to care for those that God has put around you. you now, giving out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of obligation, is just not enough. We need to give out of a sense of faith and joy, believing in the promise that it truly is more blessed to give than to receive. I, I want to throw out an invitation here, as a, a way for us to, to practically respond. I look around the area uh, of our church building, and I, I see that this is a very urban setting that we are in. I mean, just think of the intersection right there at South Main and 610. Just think about how many of the poor and the homeless in our city just congregate there. I mean, every, every time you come to church, I, I know you see them. I see them every day. I, I come here almost every day. I see them all the time. And I, I know over the years we've organized events and initiatives to minister to the poor, but usually it was always just one and done, right? We just do this one thing, and then, you know, we, we feel like, you know, we, we've done our part, and then it's kind of it. Well, I, I like for us to form, I like, I like to form a task force of sorts, uh, of members who, who want to just come together and let's just pray together. And let's just seek together God's direction for how we as a church might be able to better serve the poor that are immediately around us. To do it, of course, in responsible and sustainable and, of course, Christ-centered ways in partnership with like-minded churches. Not thinking that we can just do this all by ourselves. Like-minded churches and ministries that probably are already doing something right now. We can just join in with them. So, 
If that's something that interests you, if you want to be part of that group that just kind of prays for what we could be doing and seeks out what is happening, right? What is God already doing and how can we join in on what he is doing for the poor and needy? Just contact me. Let me know uh, this coming week. I I would love to rally a team to to dream up a ministry of mercy. Uh, Again, a responsible, sustainable, Christ-centered ministry uh, for us. So, friends, if you're feeling... It's kind of convicted right now as you're thinking about your own attitude towards giving and especially towards the poor. If you're feeling convicted, I, I want to let you know that's a good thing. And I think that's exactly where this parable wants us to be. Because in verse 27, if you follow along with me, the rich man, he's also convicted. He feels very convicted in the way that he did not shrewdly use his money to care for the poor. But for him, he realizes it's just too late. But he hopes that it's not too late for his brothers, for for them to make a change and for them not to end up where he is. And so it's here in verses 27 to 31 that we learn our third and final principle, that nothing will convince us to change until we are changed by the word of God. The rich man says that if Lazarus were just to go to his father's house and warn his five brothers of his faith, then they won't possibly join him in this place of eternal torment. Of course, that's suggesting that his brothers also were wealthy and shared his same attitude towards money and the poor. Now, notice what Abraham says to him in verse 29. He says, basically, your brothers don't need Lazarus to come and warn them. They already have the scriptures. They, they already have Moses and the prophets. They can listen to the scriptures. But the rich man objects. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Did you notice he said repentance? So he, he knows that's the problem. He knows repentance is what he lacked. He's not in Hades because he didn't give away all of his money. He's in Hades because he never repented of his sins. He never repented of his love of money. And now he's hoping that his brothers will do that. But listen to Abraham's response. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, what this is suggesting is that a lack of evidence or a lack of good arguments is not fundamentally what keeps people from believing the gospel or from repenting of their sins or from changing their attitude towards money and the poor. What keeps people from naturally doing these things is a sinful heart. And so what we need is not more evidence, more arguments, not even just more signs from heaven or even the testimony of the dead. What we need is a new heart with new eyes of the heart that can finally see Jesus as our true treasure and that can really see the needs of those around us that we walk past and drive past every day. We need a heart that truly believes it's more blessed to give than to receive. And the point of This last verse in verse 31, the point is that Scripture is sufficient, friends, to give you that new heart. The Spirit of God sufficiently uses the Word of God to grant you new life and that new heart. 
Nothing is going to convince you to change your ways until you are changed by the Spirit through the Scriptures. And the irony is that the very testimony that this rich man was asking to be sent to his brothers, the testimony of the dead, the irony is that it was denied the brothers, but it was actually given to us. The testimony that he was hoping to go to the brothers is given to all of us who read and and listen to this parable. And so, unlike the brothers, we've received the warning. We know what awaits us in the afterlife if we fail to show mercy in this life. So what are we going to do with that privilege? What are we going to do with this testimony of the dead? Are we going to listen? Are we going to repent? Are we going to change the way that we view our our spending habits? Are we going to change our, our, our giving patterns? What are we going to do? How are we going to show mercy as we have been shown mercy by Christ? We've been given the warning. We've been given the testimony. Let's act. Father, I pray that you will grant us those eyes, the eyes of a new heart to see the reality of our souls, of what our souls are truly depending on and and trusting in, to see the needs of those around us, the poor, the hurting, the helpless, and to see just the abundant blessings that you have given to us. And may we see that ultimately you, your son Jesus, is our true treasure and help, and that even if we were to give of our earthly treasures, we would still have him. We would still have our treasure in heaven. And so we pray that you would open up our eyes and cause us to act with mercy and compassion. We pray this in your name. Amen.